Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Weekly Radio or Friday Breakfast on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And, good, and welcome to a very wet morning. And good morning, Jacob. Ah, good morning. <laughs> just uh, arrived on time. Yes, just in time. The nick of time. Um, we start off with acknowledgement of land. We pay our respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri, and the, uh, Wurundjeri land and the Kulin Nation. This land was never ceded. It's, we live on stolen land. Um, we have in front of us a very busy program, actually. We've got three interviews. The first one we, is with um, Brett Holmes, who is the General Secretary of the um, Nurses and uh, Midwives Association from New South Wales. The second one is from um, the... Uh, he's not a secretary, but he's, he's a spokesperson for the um, Inner Melbourne uh, Public um, Training. Public, isn't it the Public Transport Users no, Association? No, no, no. no, no it's not. Um, let me update you properly on that. It's the Inner Melbourne Planning um, Alliance. Beg your pardon. Mm. So, and the third one is from an update from the UGL SO workers who have been on strike for more than 300 days and some new rather worrying developments at that front that was released yesterday as well. So let's start off with um, some news, Jacob. Well, actually, um, because I just wrote an article about this and it's just appeared online in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, I can simply... Talk about we can talk about um, it. We can just talk about actually... Um, the state budget um, has been unveiled by the um, state Labor government, the Daniel Andrews government, um, on it was happened um, this Tuesday. Um, and to give a, some responses um, to the budget, I mean, it's clearly, what I can say about it is, it's a budget that's clearly aiming, you know, pitched at, at the election, um, you know, he's made, there's a lot of, you know, welcome investments in, you know, public health, um, public education. Um, you know, one of the more notable things is that the Daniel Andrews government is going to be spending millions to offer free TAFE courses. Um, not every TAFE course will be free, of course, but there'll be a select number of courses that will be free to students um, from 2019. Um, but I guess on that's sort of the positives of the budget. On the negative side of the budget, um, it kind of reflects the trend of the kind of Daniel Andrews government trying to, you know, sort of cater to the right wing of politics. So there's a massive amount of money being uh, invested into police. Uh, in fact, you know, this follows last year's budget, which included more increased funding for police, but this year's will um, even double 
in, has even more increased um, funding for you. It's like, you know, is there no end to this kind of madness? <laughs> and then some of that money is also going to... You're building a new prison in Lara, Jacob. You've got yeah. to fill it up. What's wrong with you? He needs personnel to catch all those terrible working yeah. class kids and employees. Well, it's all, it's all based on this, um, you know, on the race, on the kind of racist scaremongering about crime, despite the fact that, you know, the facts are... Crime, overall crime rate in Victoria remains the lowest it has been. Um, and I guess another aspect of the budget um, is that it's completely terrible on the environmental front. In fact, um, when I was writing the article, um, I went for a lot of um, responses from environmental NGOs and not a single one had anything positive to say about the budget. In fact, there's actually less money allocated to renewable energy and climate change than there was in last year's budget. And I guess another aspect of the budget is um, on the question of public transport. Um, There is some welcome investment in public transport. Uh, For example, there's going to at least be one of the more notable things is there's going to be at least 50 million allocated to investigating um, and planning a potential um, bullet train um, between Geelong and Melbourne, which would be quite exciting if it was implemented, although they should also be looking, be more ambitious than that. We should have a bullet train between Melbourne and Sydney. And Canberra. And Canberra. In fact, that would, it would be probably, we'd be like living in a futuristic Great society. protest. And, but it's, um, despite the fact there's 1.9 billion, um, been invested in public transport in this budget. There's more than 4.2 billion invested in roads, right. uh, and including at least 3 billion um, are being put into the very unpopular. Well, I hope it's unpopular. The North East <laughs> Link, yeah, sure. um, which is incredibly problematic, because if the North East Link were to be built, it would basically rule out a Doncaster Rail being built in the future, which, you know, why is it that we're trying to build a northeast link when we still don't have a Doncaster rail line? It's the only region uh, in Melbourne that is not serviced by so a train line. Doncaster and is meant to be the upper middle class or the richer people, partly, I think. Uh, but also your room uh, recognises that overall Victoria is spending the lowest percentage of its budget on public transport overall. Mm. It's like 0.78, and every other state is way ahead of Victoria. Mm. But we'll talk about yeah. it more. I guess, the, I guess the last thing um, I, want to, um, I wanted to mention about the budget is on the question of housing. Now, the state Labor government is still um, implementing um, the public housing renewal project. Um, of course, it wasn't noted down the budget, but the fact is they're still they're continuing to make plans to sell off at least 9 to 12 public housing estates and hand it over to private developers. Um, but in the budget, you can it's quite clear what's clearly absent is there's actually nothing in there that addresses housing. I mean, I'm sure there might be stuff in the federal budget because the state la- um, labour is not going to be delivering that federal budget. But there's absolutely nothing in there about housing affordability. And in fact, it's kind of a big joke. In fact, there's not yet... Yeah, um, there was nothing. There's no nothing in the budget that, that where where the government has said they're committed to building affordable um, apart private apartments or private housing. There's nothing in the, the budget that indicates they're uh, interested in increasing um, the public housing stock, despite the fact that the public housing waiting list remains at over forty thousand. So yeah, it's a a weird kind of omission. But you know, to end with the positives again, the the investments in education and health are pretty good. Um, but clearly it's relatively good. Um, 
it's clear, but it's clearly because, um, you know, this is a budget that comes out of the co- political context of the fact that there is a state election coming up. That's what it is. It's, it's an election budget, for sure. But moving on, mm. let's talk about May Day. Mm. You know, the most important day for workers uh, on a yearly basis around the world. And interesting note that there's been a lot of violence this year. Uh, like in France and I think in Spain as well, workers were attacked by the police. Um, so I haven't looked at the details of that yet, but that's worth noting because normally you've got millions of people marching around the world on the 1st of May, except in Victoria, out of the other states, but it's absolutely disgraceful. But despite all that, I think it's worth just revisiting the origins um, and, and, you know, how and why May Day um, came about. Like, you know, it's 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 a day that should be a lot more celebrated than it is, of course. Um, but um, the ruling class, so to speak, have dumbed it down to try and reduce the consciousness of workers around this particular event. Now, I'll quickly read this because I've got to get on to the first interview that's coming up. Okay, in the U.S., I guess May 1 marked the date. Um, in 1886, when about 190,000 workers went to strike around the country, and 150,000 more threatened to strike in support of the demand for the eight-hour day. In Australia, it was 30 years earlier, in the, on the 21st of April, 1856, that stonemasons working on the old quadrangle building at Melbourne University downed tools and marched to Parliament House, along with other building workers, to demand the eight-hour day. So following this campaign, the eight-hour day was introduced in Melbourne for workers employed in public works without loss of pay. So several months earlier, stonemasons in Sydney successfully organized, agitated for, and gained the eight-hour day. So May Day is the historic struggle for the eight-hour day. And it's worth remembering because the eight-hour day didn't, didn't get offered to us on a silver platter. It was fought for and people went on strike for it and argued for it and absolutely struggled for it, just like every other um, you know, working condition that we have, whether it's for, for, um, the four-week um, holiday or sick leave or paternity leave or maternity leave or any leave that um, – and health and safety conditions. Every one of them have been fought for and, of course, by the trade unions, you know, on the mm-hmm. whole um, – so it's, it's important to remember the 1st of May is an important one. And, of course, I might as well announce it now. There's the um, May Day March on the 6th, which is the Sunday, um, which is a pity because it would be nice to have it on the 1st to reinforce the importance um, of this, this very uh, cu- culturally important day for workers, really. Uh, so it's, the themes defend workers' rights, demand the right to strike. So everybody should turn up to Victoria Trades Hall, which is the corner of um, Victoria and Russell Streets. On the 6th of May, it starts about 1 p.m. It will be like a, a family day, but there will be a march at the end of it. To the, to, I mean, I guess it's really, really important for everybody to, to, write, to recognize the right to belong to a union, um, free of government controls, the right to strike, the right to good education, health and welfare services, the right to live in a safe and protected environment, the right to live in peace, f- free from war. And I guess this, this ties in nicely with the campaign that the city has launched, which uh, changed the rules. Um, it's a rules that have been bent and probably broken for the sake of uh, profit makers. So let's make this May Day a big one on the 1st of May, uh, mm. 6th of May, mm. this Sunday. 
and also attend the um, the, um, the massive Change the Rules campaign on I mean Change the Rules rally on Wednesday. And we are on um, the line with Brett Holmes, who is the general secretary of the Nurses and Midwives Association of New South Wales, and the nurses um, around the nation have got a campaign going in relation to HK, and there's New South Wales is also. Um, Involved in, a, in another in another struggle for um, nurse patient ratio. Good morning, um, Brett. Good morning. Thank you so much for offering to talk to 3CR. Um, we are very keen to talk about this because we haven't talked about nurses for a long time, and, and the health area has been rather um, neglected. Um, can you tell us what the um, campaign is about? That's the the national one. Well, the national aged care campaign is about. Uh, giving the level of care that uh, the residents in the aged care facilities actually need. And what we've established is that we really need ratios in aged care of, for staffing uh, to the residents. Uh, currently, there is no guaranteed number of uh, carers or nurses to residents in our aged care facilities. It's really quite strange. There are laws to protect children, but there are no laws to protect uh, the frail elderly in our residential aged care facility. Hmm. The Commonwealth law simply says sufficient, suitably qualified staff, and that's been shown to be really inadequate uh, when it's left up to the operators to deliver that uh, care um, because ultimately uh, they're... Uh, provided about 70% of their funding by the Commonwealth Government and the rest has to come from uh, the residents. But um, what we've also identified is that in a number of the large for-profit aged care operators, uh, they're doing quite well and uh, they're finding ways to avoid taxation as well. So there is money in the aged care system that could be used and should be used uh, for delivering direct care to those residents. Mm. We've well, done a national... Sorry, go on. Sorry. Uh, there's been a, a national research project being undertaken in aged care, and that has identified that currently uh, residents on average are given two hours and 50 minutes of care per day, but... Uh, on average, their needs are actually four hours and 18 minutes a day and that there also needs to be a proper skill mix of expertise delivering that care, including registered nurses, enrolled nurses and personal care workers or assistants in nursing. Um, the latter category uh, should make up at least 50% of the care levels, but we need to make sure that there's at least 30% of the care staff are registered nurses. Mm. There, there are different uh, types of um, aged care facilities, like, like there are ones that are run for profit, and there's a group that's run not for profit. Obviously, the, the religious organisations may be uh, involved in that, and there are government-run um, aged care facilities. Are you saying that every one of those groups have a similar pattern of uh, providing low-quality care and actually making money out of this as a big business? Well, the, uh, there, there are variances across the operators and, uh, yes, there are uh, for-profits, there are not-for-profits, there 
and in amongst those not-for-profits, there's community-delivered services, there's uh, religious-based uh, non, non-government organisations. And uh, Victoria has uh, pro- the largest number of government-run aged care facilities. In New South Wales, uh, we only have uh, one or two left in, mm. in the state. So the majority of the care is delivered uh, by the private sector and it's watched over by the Commonwealth Government's uh, various bodies. Um, what we do know, though, is that uh, the National uh, Aged Care Survey that has been undertaken, uh, overseen by the uh, Flinders University and the South Australian University, has identified those important uh, outcomes where we definitely need to deliver more hours of care to the residents in order to be delivering them the quality of life that they deserve. Yes, and another prong in your campaign, I guess, which you're, you're conducting this jointly with the Australian Nurses and Midwife Federation um, in the other states, so it becomes a national or the old um, ANF um, yep. you, as, as such. And this... Um, Financial year, uh, mostly the, the 2017 financial year, uh, the report that you mentioned says that the six largest for-profit companies were given over $2.17 billion by, the gov- by government subsidies. I find this really interesting because to, 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 to make it a bit more understandable, because it's quite a complex um, formula, I think, the HK uh, facilities use to... Um, to get the payments from the, the, the residents. And most residents have to sell their homes to go into what they call a comfortable home, a nursing home. And it becomes quite stressful financially and emotionally and otherwise for them. So you, are you combining that with the fact that they are poorly staffed as well? Well, I suppose the uh, residential bond that people have to pay to go into aged care now uh, is designed by government to provide the operators with uh, an income using the interest on those bonds uh, to help develop uh, growth and uh, replacement of capital cost in those uh, facilities and to allow those operators to continue to grow their businesses. Uh, the residential care subsidies are uh, provided by the government and uh, that $2.17 billion for just those six um, for-profit operators uh, makes up about 72% of their revenue. Um, so they uh, then achieve some revenue by extra charges to residents who can afford it. Uh, and out of that, uh, they should be delivering uh, the care that these residents need. I mean, we've, we've seen that uh, Bupa, Australia's largest aged care provider, made over $663 million in 2017, 70% of that coming from the government funding. And we also saw that uh, there was an increase in taxpayer-funded resident fee and resident fees in 2017. Um, but interestingly, Bupa declared in its uh, record that it paid almost $3 million less to employees and suppliers 
which has to make you conclude that uh, they're cutting back on uh, care hours to those residents. They're paying less employees uh, and uh, their suppliers. So you have to be concerned about how much money is being uh, taken out of the aged care system and not delivered as care, but delivered as uh, some sort of reward for the operators in profit or, or otherwise. There's also, within the area of tax, uh, it appears that many of these large uh, for-profit companies are using similar tactics to other corporations where uh, they're able to uh, split their businesses up and uh, provide loans from one part of their business to the other at very high interest rates and therefore reduce their tax liabilities. Hmm. Uh, but in, in the end, the, the company makes a profit. And they pay very little tax. In- uh, yes, uh, it is surprisingly uh, small amounts of tax that are paid and uh, there are a couple of the, the large operators who have uh, on their tax record said that they didn't pay any tax uh, in a number of years. And so a, a company called Ality uh, did not pay tax in 2015-16 or 2014-15 and uh, Opal paid no tax in 2014-15. So they're able to uh, obviously offset their expenditure, offset their income against expenditure and end up paying no tax and yet you know, we have to be fair here, 70% of their income does come from uh, we, the taxpayer. Mm. And it, it's a growing industry as we have an ageing population in Australia, and I guess this is going to be a very important campaign for people to, to keep an eye on and relate to because of this very nature of uh, taxpayers' uh, money being converted to profits for these companies. And um, when do you expect to start action on this campaign? Well, action is started already. There are advertising uh, going on. There's uh, lobbying of politicians. Um, there, we will be launching in New South Wales on International Nurses Day. Which is next, um, the, the 12th, isn't it? The 12th uh, of, of May, May this year, yes. And that, uh, that will be uh, launched, in fact, right across Australia where the uh, Federation... Australian Nursing Midwifery Federation will be undertaking activities in each of the state and territories on that day uh, to highlight the start of the the public part of the campaign. And we do invite uh, people to come along uh, to all of those events and provide support, have a say, uh, tell their politicians that we want a better outcome in our aged care facilities. Uh, Just recently we've heard... uh, Bill Shorten admit that there is a crisis in aged care, uh, so we really want to, to make sure that the community understands uh, there is a big issue uh, that we need to address in aged care. We uh, should be providing the proper respect and dignity to those people who have paid their taxes uh, and supported our community Absolutely. grow, and uh, they uh, deserve to be cared for properly and to have a very dignified end of life. Mm. And you've got a petition uh, that people can sign if they want to, isn't there? Uh, On the Australian Nursing Midwifery uh, website, uh, that's right, 
but there is there are petitions available. Mm-hmm. I'll try and put it um, on the podcast so people who wish to sign can have access to it. So I'd just like to move on to your campaign in New South Wales about the nurse-patient ratio because I'm a nurse from the old days and um, I remember fighting for this in the 1986 strike in, in Victoria. So what what is the status of this nurse-patient uh, patient ratio? Um, after such a long time, New South Wales seems to be fighting this. I wonder if you can tell the, the listeners about what's going on because it will have impact in Victoria as well. Well, uh, the nurses and midwives in New South Wales have uh, fought this battle for quite some time and we've gone through various different uh, ways of uh, trying to deliver ratios. And the most recent one was put in place by the outgoing Labor government in uh, 2011 and that was a ratio system where the numbers of hours uh, was balanced over a week rather than a shift by shift basis which is the methodology that's used in Victoria uh, and uh, now introduced into Queensland as law as well. But in New South Wales uh, we've tested that system for nearly seven years now and what we've found is that it's really uh, not meeting uh, the needs. And it's, it's frankly being rorted by uh, management. Uh, in just uh, six hospitals where we looked at uh, between six and 12 months' worth of records, and in only those wards that are entitled to have nurse-to-patient ratios, we found that there'd been a shortfall of 26,000 hours of care that should have been delivered to patients that wasn't, uh, simply because there weren't enough nurses uh, rostered on to those wards. And that's for and the year? That's uh, for, some pe- for some hospitals that was up for a 12-month period. For others, it was only a six-month period. Hmm. So there's very, uh, very concerning levels of non-compliance with the current system. Uh, it is the law in New South Wales, but um, what we've found is that the management uh, failed to meet their requirements under the law. And that's certainly uh, consolidated our belief that we need a nurse-to-patient ratio system that is based on every shift, on the patients in the ward or unit on every shift, and that uh, one that can be Uh, enforced by the nurses uh, and midwives with greater transparency. We need to make sure that the the numbers of nurses uh, with the right skills are being made available to the patient so that their care can be delivered safely. Mm. Um, Because, uh, you know, as we know, there's um, more and more intense um, conditions um, that are being seen in the hospitals, like the sh- stays very short for, like in, in day surgery and so on. So the 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 patients actually are in hospital have um, a fairly serious conditions, and they certainly need more care. And this was an argument that's been going on for a long time in Victoria as well as the other states. Um, so is that one of the arguments to be using, or other other forms of arguments? Well, there's no doubt there's a higher level of acuity um, within our health system and that's been the case, as you've said, for quite some time that uh, people spend less time in hospital and uh, therefore their, their care starts to be transferred into the community. 
but it means that those people who need to stay in hospital are very sick and uh, dependent on the care that's being provided by the nurses. Uh, so we will be uh, using those arguments, but there is uh, ever-increasing international research that shows getting the nurse-to-patient ratios right saves lives. And uh, every time you decrease the number of nurses available to care, then you increase the risk of death. So we want to make uh, very clear to the New South Wales government and uh, let the people of New South Wales know that ratios uh, are a matter of life or death and we want to make sure that the care that's being delivered to patients in our public health system uh, is going to meet their absolute needs and that be delivered at the safest possible uh, level. And this campaign has started as well? That's right. Uh, our branches in our hospitals and community health centres uh, voted in uh, late March uh, on our claim and we've lodged our claim with the New South Wales government. Many of our branches are undertaking uh, some activity to launch the campaign. We expect uh, this is going to be a long and difficult fight with New South Wales government who have uh, resisted uh, ever since uh, they've been in power. The Liberal Nationals have refused to bargain, refused to negotiate around nurse-to-patient ratios and uh, it's now time for uh, the nurses and midwives to stand up and to call upon the community for their support to uh, deliver a decent ratio system that delivers for the patient's Mm. We need to make sure that everyone who comes into hospital, whether they're uh, mothers and babies or elderly people or people just uh, coming through the emergency department, yes. get enough care, mm. and that depends upon how many nurses mm. are available. This has always been a contentious issue all around Australia and even internationally, obviously. Um, Given the importance of this issue to the community, do you um, have other unions or other organisations, community organisations, that are supporting this campaign? Uh, we expect that uh, we, we will be gathering uh, support. I know that in aged care we have uh, many supporters in community groups. Uh, at the moment, our ratios campaign across the public health system uh, we're going out uh, publicly uh, with advertising uh, in the coming weeks and we, uh, we, we're certainly calling upon the community to stand with us and call upon the New South Wales government to uh, deliver proper nurse-to-patient ratios and to make sure that those uh, where they don't already exist are spread across the state and across all levels of our health system. And if listeners want to follow your dispute over there on this particular issue, um, is there a website they can access? Yes, the Nurses and Midwives uh, website in New South Wales is www.nswnma.asn.au and that will continue to be updated around our campaign. Mm. 
Well, I guess your campaign tied nicely with the ACDU's campaign um, titled "Change the Rules." So that should be interesting because um, quite a, a battle is being launched on that front as well. Um, That's I, right. We we need to change the rules here in New South Wales about uh, the ratios in our public health system. We need to change the rules about the, the ratios in our aged care system. And we need to change the rules for New South Wales public servants around their rights to properly bargain for pay increases. The government has taken away those rights by legislating uh, outcomes uh, in relation to wages and conditions and styming the ability to negotiate for better wages and conditions. So at both a federal and state level, uh, we need to change the rules make sure that uh, workers get the opportunity to be properly rewarded for their work and that they can undertake their roles uh, and participate in union activity for the benefit of the community. Mm, without reprisals and arrests and threats and all the other things that employers do these days. Um, thank you very much, Brett. Very kind of you to be available at 7.15 in the morning for this interview. And all the best in your battles, but we'll be keeping a close eye on this struggle. And welcome back to Friday Breakfast, Screen Left Radio. Um, if you enjoyed that interview, time for Radiothon. Um, we want to get a bit of a head start on this. Um, please ring the station. Uh, 94198377 and the Radiothon starts officially on the 4th but we're hoping to start the collection of some fun before that so you can pay anything from $2 and above all tax deductible you can ring the station and uh, make a payment or you can go onto the website 3cr.org.au to make the payment so please dig deep and do keep this um, program on air if you enjoy it. Thanks. All right, so I want to talk about um, a story from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, it's basically um, kind of a, a bit of a discussion about a report related to um, the Adani coal mine and or more related to the Adani um, company corporation itself. And so Mark Gleeson here writes, and this is with the headline, Exploiting Bangladesh, um, Adani's Latest Coal Scam. And the gist of this article states that, you know, um, in a report um, um, called Goddard Power Project, um, Too Expensive, Too Late and Too Risky by Tim Buckley and Simon Nicholas, was released on April um, um, the 10th by the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis and has concluded um, that the Goda Power Project, which is promoted by Adani to justify its struggling Carmichael coal project in Queensland, is financially unviable and a poor strategic fit um, for Bangladesh. Um, in a media release, um, Buckley, um, Australia, or something director of energy finance study, said Adani sees the Goda Project as a way to provide an alternative destination for coal from the Carmichael, for which it has so far failed to secure any funding. And, of course, he, based, he said that, you know, Golda would be a policy catastrophe for Bangladesh. Um, the plan has been proposed as a way for India to export power from uh, Jharkhand state into nearby Bangladesh. But both India and Bangladesh would be better off in, if Bangladesh were to import power on a technology 
the agnostic basis from existing plants. Um, and so what, what they say here is that Goda would lock Bangladesh into expensive electricity with high emissions at a time when cleaner, cheaper alternative sources of energy are rapidly being deployed uh, across India. You know, importing coal from Australia and then railing at 700 kilometres past the largest coal reserves in India would simply make any electricity produced at the Goda too expensive. And so that's just um, a bit of a kind of some, uh, a gist of um, what's written here. But I think kind of the concluding kind of point is, you know, there's a kind of inter- there's some international kind of significance here in the sense that you know there is some clear grassroots opposition um, to the to the Goda project in both India's Jharkhand state and Bangladesh and of course that would create sort of opportunities in terms of the Stop Adani campaign um, you know to create mutual international solidarity activities um, with especially with the movement to Stop Adani in Australia. I know it's disgrace. I mean Adani's record is it's all over the net if you look at it and. This is another one locally they're doing. I want to move on to the multiple articles about Aboriginal issues in this uh, week's um, Green Left Weekly. Uh, there's an issue with um, there's, there's an article about a woman, um, a, yin, uh, a yin woman, survivor of the sort of stolen generation. There's, of course, Ray Jackson. Um, and there's also um, the worker Josh. Um, but I want to talk about this um, important um, battle that's going on in um, the Northern Territory. Uh, more than 600 activists rallied on the 22nd of April to condemn the Chief Minister Michael Gunner, who is actually Aboriginal. He's, he's one of the, the one who replaced the previous one with the um, Dondale um, Youth Just, so-called justice system. Uh, he announced that fracking would go ahead in the Northern Territory despite his election promise of a five-year moratorium. So the Ghana Labour government has elected, was elected in 2016 partly on the promise to hold back on fracking, which would open 51% of the Northern Territory to be controversial to be a controversial process of mining gas via hydraulic um, fracturing or fracking. So a strong movement of environmentalists, landowners, uh, recreation fisher, far- fishermen, farmers and traditional owners have come together over several years to oppose fracking with the support of uh, groups of other states. So it's interesting as people from such diverse um, you know, uh, areas have come together, which would, which generally you find they fight each other. But this time, they've all come together for the single devastating. Fifty-one percent is a huge amount of the Northern Territory to be allocated to, to fracking. So, Ghana on the 17th of April announced that the Northern Territory would adopt those recommendations um, and allow fracking to go ahead. Debate raged within the Labour and within Labour and lead up to the Ghana's announcement. So the Northern Territory Senator um, Malarn Diri, let me say that correctly, Malar Diri McCarthy told the ABC News that her office was flooded with calls of dismay at the decision. It was a day of much sadness for many people. So this is what the Labour government is doing in the Northern Territory. And you wonder why people don't trust the Labour government. Um, it, it, it gets harder and harder to trust either of them, and that's becoming more and more evident. Okay, you want to go on another news uh, item, um, Jacob? Yeah, kind of want to talk about. Um, we just remember um, we got our interview in three minutes, um, so um, 
Just want to talk about this article about a big win for Palestine as um, college students wrote to divest from from apartheid profiteers. And this is a bit of a summary about what happened in New York. Um, but in a major victory for the Palestinian rights movement on US college campuses, students at Barnard College in New York City voted in favour of a referendum supporting divestment from companies profiting from Israel's human rights violations. Um, and this is... To give a bit of context, Bernard is a partner of Columbia University. It's a prestigious women's college with a large Jewish um, student population. Students say there were attempts to influence votes against the referendum, including multiple alleged violations of campaign rules and smears accusing supporters of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement targeting Israel of anti-Semitism. And, you know, despite this, um, you know, more than 64% of voters approved the referendum um, where the results were announced on April the 8th. And, you know, the significance of this result of, you know, of, of, of students organising to get their um, university campuses to divest from, um, from apartheid profiteers is, I guess, significant because, you know, where it's, it's on a climate of a, it's, it's in a particular political climate where, um, that is naturally hostile to us, which is um, what Hassin El Tanar, a member of the Columbia Students for Justice in Palestine, told the electronic Indofate. It also shows the immense amount of support that has been growing for Palestine around campuses in our country. And so that's kind of just a bit of a summary of, um, you know, there's a bit more detail in this article you can read on the Layers Screen Left Weekly. Um, but yeah, it's just, I think it's quite a significant victory, a small one, but quite significant, especially in the context of politics in the United States and student politics as well. So we have got um, Ian Huntley from the Inner Melbourne, sorry, Inner Melbourne uh, Planning Alliance. Um, he, Ian Huntley is a spokesperson for this organisation and we want update, uh, an update on what's happening and especially post-budget. Um, It'll be interesting to get a, a rundown of what the Alliance thinks about the proposals as well. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Lalitha. Welcome to... Yeah, uh, welcome to, to 3CR and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. So... The budget has been positive for the Associate Alliance, you think? Um, well, the budget, I think, has been something of a disappointment. <laughs> yeah, uh, I thought we as were, much, yes. We were expecting more, uh, particularly in the area of sustainable transport. I mean, the reality is that I think if we need to look behind the, the budget figures as to where money is being spent and significant amounts of money is being spent, but our car dependency is costing particularly suburban households very heavily. Um, People are buying second, third and fourth cars because they're so poorly served by public transport and young people are socially isolated in suburban Melbourne, particularly outer suburban Melbourne where we have our major growth going on because they rely on um, parents to get them around. They don't really have the sort of social independence uh, they need uh, and which in a suburban Melbourne um, residents in, in many cases take for granted. Mm. So that's, that's a major issue and this, and this budget really takes us in the wrong direction because the major spend in middle and outer suburbs is basically on increasing road capacity rather than improving sustainable transport, and particularly public transport. 
Hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that isolation for young people because um, I, being a nurse, we, we visit a lot of um, women who uh, have babies out in the, in, in the outer suburbs yes. and that there's enormous social isolation where you're stuck at home looking at the four walls because you probably don't have a car. Um, and, you know, it, it's horrible because they, they haven't developed all the social networks. Even shops sometimes are missing in those areas, never mind transport. They are unable to get out of that social isolation, which yes. uh, often, uh, you know, sort of, um, it's, it's a ideal situation where you find women become depressed because they've been used to going to work and suddenly they're stuck at home. The yes. partner's gone to work and this is, is rampant, uh, not just the young people but women and, and other age, and even the aged uh, group as well who are stuck yeah, out there, yeah. unable to, to, to communicate or commute mm. to facilities that can offer them that social environment where they can thrive in. And, and so it's That's got right. a terrible uh, health outcome, this, this transportation, yes, I mean, isn't I, it? I think it is really the, the real impost that puts on families needing to buy extra motor vehicles to actually get around when in fact they should have ready access to public transport which would which would be much cheaper on the household budget and also more importantly perhaps in many cases mm. uh, serve to reduce that um, social isolation mm. um, so it's, it's really a question I think of of more money not necessarily meaning a a better transport system which will carry more people and, in fact, more freight. Uh, we really need to build the right projects. Otherwise, otherwise um, as our experience has shown, by building more freeways, for example, and uh, we've got the Victorian government proposing the northeast link at about $16.5 billion. And uh, now we have the Liberal Party or the Coalition proposing again to build the east-west link. That's right. The battle, uh, isn't it? They really, they really are bad. <laughs> bad areas of, of spending and when we really n- need to look at other areas. I mean, even the Liberal Coalition in its last years in office said that we basically need to get more people into public transport for a li- to maintain a livable Melbourne that um, some people say that we have these days. Um, but in reality, only one in six people, for example, travel by public transport to work in Melbourne and better performed cities it's much higher than that it's higher than that in Sydney um, it's been that way for many years uh, and we really need to improve it but the spend that has come out of this budget and what appears to be proposed by the state opposition led by Matthew Guy is taking us in quite the opposite direction Mm. I also find that the, the public transport, I, I actually took the train, the tram the last few days, mm. and um, I missed a couple of trams because they were too full. There no, no yes. space to get in. And then I, I got the train um, yesterday, and it was completely packed. And yeah. this was about, um, you know, not, not even 7 o'clock in the morning yet. And people yeah. are just crammed into the, the, the carriages. And I had to walk along the train to look for a carriage that had space for one person to squeeze in. So the, the quality of transport, the frequency of, of transport, seemed yeah. to be horrible at, the, at this point of time. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, um, I mean, there's been concern for many years by the people of Manningham, for example, that uh, they get a, um, a train service to Doncaster Hill. Yep, that's right. You'll be aware of that. Yes. Um, and I know people that catch the, I think it's the 905 and the 906 uh, 
smart bus, as it's perhaps inappropriately called. Um, yes, where in true. Recent time, well, <laughs> in recent times, uh, people have been standing at bus stops um, on those services and buses have whizzed by with, sorry, full or something mm. like that uh, mm. displayed on them. And in fact, in, on one occasion, one of my friends said he, he saw three buses go by. He works in the city. He saw three buses go by during the peak, uh, mm. completely full. So that's that's happening a lot. But on the other side of things, we've got other areas of Melbourne which are really poorly served by buses. That Those buses uh, do run reasonably frequently, but clearly there's a lack of capacity there. But in, in other areas, um, uh, the, um, the buses don't run frequently enough. Um, there's another one that, for example, runs between Blackburn and... Brighton, the 703, which is a very important bus service mm. uh, that serves, uh, amongst other locations, Monash University, and that only runs every half hour on Saturdays and Sundays. Yes, students go in. Yeah. <laughs> There's an even worse story with uh, the 788 service from Frankston Station to Portsea on Point Nepean Road. Um, it serves a very large suburban area in the, in the Mornington Peninsula on the... Uh, Port Phillip Bay side. Uh, that runs every 40 to 45 minutes on weekdays and runs every 70 to 80 minutes on weekends. It's, it's, it's quite absurd mm. um, and really needs to be upgraded. Yeah, and so we've had a lot of examples of that, I'm afraid. Yeah, I know. We could go on about this, for example. But, so I'm uh, sure people uh, can yeah, ring in and, and start um, complaining to yeah. <laughs> the Just any... on the buses again, the, um, the, the spend in the budget uh, for new bus services uh, is only $12 million a year mm. for the first year and similar figures for the next three years. So you can compare that with something like the North East Link, uh, which will carry, I think, about 100,000 cars a day. It will cost $16.5 billion. Mm. Uh, so but all these freeways that they build eventually end up being congested anyway. That's exactly right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a never-ending circle. It's a circular thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they call freeways. They're never free when you want them to be free. I think there's a fairly straightforward answer for that, and that's basically because car traffic uh, is so space inefficient. Yeah. And by and large, what we've got happening during the peak hours in Melbourne, uh, Monday to Friday, is a lot of people in cars, perhaps... 70% of trips are made by car, made yes. by drivers with the odd passenger. I think there's 1.1 persons on average in each car in Melbourne during peak hour. Mm. Um, so um, a freeway lane will occupy, it will basically uh, cater for, say, 1,200 vehicles per hour. But a train uh, will cater for 1,100 people, just one train. Yeah. We should be running trains every three minutes on that's most right. of our lines. I agree. So that's about, <laughs> that's about 33,000 people you can shift on in a train in an hour, but you can only shift about 1,500 people uh, yeah. in, a, in a car line on but a freeway. So that's, there's no surprise that these things fill up very quickly. Yeah, but there's so many other issues attached to transport, isn't there? I mean, one is the environment, the, the mm. key one. I guess people will talk about um, these days. But there's also yeah. the, the actual planning part of it, which you guys would have, would have thought about, like having infrastructure, like schools, for example, where kids don't have to travel across the, the, the city to go to a school. If mm. all the schools were at a good level and people trusted and, and, and are happy with those schools, 
things, you wouldn't have all these things happening. So, you know, these are just one or two issues I can think of, and I'm sure you can you can talk to us a lot more about all the other social implications that are related to transport. But you were saying that you 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 were going to bring up other issues that you thought were available. Are there any issues that you wanted to bring up in this interview? Well, I think, uh, I mean, leading into the next election, uh, it, uh, it seems to be shaping up as an East-West link versus yeah. North-East link yes. uh, uh, fight between the government and the opposition. Um, and I notice in today's age that uh, the leader of the opposition, Matthew Guy, says that he that he didn't like the proposal, the North East Link proposal. Um, and did he say why? Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing. Uh, it does run through his electorate, but I've, I've attended a public forum conducted by the Liberal Party in mid-February, uh, which was basically on the North East Link and their roads and the coalition or Liberal Party roads spokesperson, David Hodgett, was in attendance. He was the major speaker there, and he essentially said that we don't like the fact that the government hasn't been disclosing all the facts about the North East Link, and that's certainly mm. true that all the facts haven't been disclosed to the public generally or to the local councils in the area. Mm. But he did go on to say that if if uh, the project stacked up after they saw the saw the documentation, that is, if they won the election on the 24th of November and they'd proceed with it. Yeah. Yeah, so, the, uh, so the two of them really need to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the funny thing about that is, um, you know, is the fact is we've been through this whole story with the Liberal Party and the East-West Link, um, and now we're having a situation when the Labor Party are attempting to push an unpopular, unpopular toll road, which is now the North-East Link. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean... Uh, the North East Link, as I understand it, will carry about 100,000 vehicles a day. Um, but when you sort of look at the, the capacities of different modes, uh, I mean, for example, Ringwood Station, there are about 240 trains go through Ringwood Station every day. And they have a carrying capacity of about a quarter of a million people. So here we are spending 16, well, proposing to spend $16.5 billion on a road. Um, which has a far lesser carrying capacity than an existing train service, which if it was run properly, properly could probably double its existing capacity. Um, how much of this? Sorry. Sorry. No, I just say how much is this? Do, is is due to the lobbying capacity of, of um, large companies like the toll company? I forget the name. That already has um, a huge. That's it. Um, that has a huge uh, monopoly on uh, roads already in Victoria and New South Wales as well. They, they've been having similar battles. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, uh, the, the toll companies have become a, a, a major political force in their own right. Mm. And they now have a certain degree of what probably could be described at one level as intellectual cap- capital. They basically have a certain level of skill and they bring to government under what used to be called the unsolicited bid process where companies go to government, go to the Victorian government and say, we've got a, we've got a proposal, a project which we could build and provide for you which would solve this particular 
political slash economic slash social problem for you. And in a sense, um, what stands for transport and urban planning these days in Melbourne has been outsourced to a corporation, which is actually a provider. In other words, hey, they have an interest in developing projects and then profiting from them. Mm. Now, this is, I think, a major concern. It should be a major public concern that we actually develop our projects these days in this way without the public interest being fully involved. Yes. Uh, the, the environmental effects statements that come out in relation to these projects uh, where people, members of the public, such as you or I, can go along and argue why the project uh, shouldn't be built, for example, um, really don't, uh, are really inadequate because it doesn't address the fundamentals of whether there are alternative projects, uh, which may be, for example, a public transport project uh, that really should be built in place of this or there should be some mixture of the two. It just doesn't happen. Mm. Uh, Transurban will turn up with their unsolicited bid or what they now call market-led proposal, I think. Oh, yes. The government decided that the term unsolicited bid was rather unattractive in the public domain, so they now call them um, market-led proposals. And yes. uh, they take it from there. That's, that's how the Westgate Tunnel Project is being built. Mm. I mean, everything nowadays is market-led solutions to problems, isn't it? So the whole approach seems to me uh, not very beneficial to people. It's never a people-led solution. It's always no, a market-led right. solution. No. It's, well, it's, it's what we used to call sort of capture of the, of the, uh, of the arms of government by, by um, private interest. Yes. Take you back to your original point. Mm, the lobbies and so on. Okay, yeah, so, that's, that's sorry. right. Is there anything else you want to say finally, Ian, before we wrap up the interview? No, I think, um, I think people really need to be in this space um, in the lead-up to the election because if we do end up with these roads projects rather than the, than, and then the appropriate mix of, of projects, and it's, it's basically going to be quite deleterious. It's going to be very destructive for Melbourne. Um, and it's going to be destructive of not only outer Melbourne, but also inner Melbourne, because what we're really talking about here is, um, is transport systems that impact on, on the whole of Melbourne. So whilst the government is spending money on outer suburban roads, really what it's doing is taking away um, resources uh, for um, more beneficial projects uh, that are far more efficient, much more space efficient, uh, mm. much better for the built and the, and the um, natural environment than than what we're um, faced with now. It's, it's a very serious situation. Absolutely. Is there any petitions or any campaigns that, that um, listeners should know about? Well, certainly uh, um, IMPA is campaigning very strongly in this space. Um, there's also the, um, uh, the, the uh, Sustainable Cities uh, campaign, which I'd certainly encourage people to sign up to. On the, that's, uh, it can be um, identified on the Prince of the Earth website. Okay. Certainly the Public Transport Users Association is campaigning vigorously in this space as well. Okay, so there's so, three different Public Transport yes. Users Association. Mm. Okay, people should... But the Friends of the Earth uh, Sustainable Cities campaign is a very comprehensive one that includes transport, but not only transport, but other aspects of the environment that, that, are, um, that will be up. 
Okay, thank you uh, very the much. In the election, yes. And it, the the battle is on towards indeed. the election, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. Okay. okay anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Green Left Radio Friday Breakfast, and we are rolling into the. Activist calendar. That's right. Off you go, Jacob. Okay, so um, stuff that's happening today is there's going to be a picket outside um, Bill Shorten's office um, about his um, su- support for the Adani coal mine, and that's going to be at 5 to 7 p.m. 12 Hall Street um, at Mooney Ponds, and it's organised by the Stop Adani Melbourne. Um, there'll be a book launch happening tonight, um, Ecofeminism as Politics, um, Nature, Marx and the Postmodern. Um, it's going to be presented by Ariel Salia, who will give no, a talk. Ariel Saleh. Ariel Saleh. It's a hard name. Yeah. <laughs> will give a talk about ecofeminism to mark the re-release of her classic title. And so that's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop. On Sunday, May the 6th, um, there'll be the May Day March with music for 11am and a march at 1pm, and that's outside the Shrades Hall. Um, there'll be a public meeting on Tuesday, May the 8th. The robots are coming. What would Mark say? Um, automation threatens paid employment while we are being subjected to the prolongation of intensified effort of fragmented working periods within the same day. And so that features um, Humphrey McQueen, and that's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop. And, and, and Humphrey through. McQueen regularly presents on Toilet Breakfast Saturday morning as well. Mm. He's a, a social political com- commentator, a long-term mm. um, person. And then on Wednesday, May the 9th, we're having the Big Change the Rules Rally. Um, that's going to be at 10am outside the Trades Hall, and um, I'll probably make a special emphasis that people should attend that because it is going to be a massive rally. Encourage as many people as possible. On Saturday, the 12th of May, will be the Victorian Socialist Campaign Launch, um, happening um, featuring a range of speakers and um, hear from the candidates in the campaign. Um, This will will be happening at um, Saturday, the May 12th, 7 pm, at the Grace Darling Hotel. You want to do you keep going? Oh, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. 18th of May, which is a couple of Fridays from now. The Stop Adani Rise Up Northern um, is uh, holding a meeting at, at the Uniting Church at 7 p.m. And that's 212-214 Sydney Road, so 212-214 Sydney Road, Brunswick. And they're also on Facebook. So the Stop Adani uh, Rise Up Northern. And the next day, the 19th of May, Saturday, Palestine, 70 years of Nakba, 12 noon, at the State Library in Swanton Street in the city, organised by Solidarity for Palestine. There's also an art exhibition that's on at that time, War Never Again, 3pm, featuring works of Michael Lunig, who passed away, um, sadly enough, recently, Arthur Boyd, uh, Jeff Lugdas, Terry Denton, Bill Kelly, Ceci uh, Cairns, uh, Ben Laylock, Lynn Ho- um, Hovey, John Nicholson, and many other fantastic artists. Rod Quantock will be opening the exhibition. It's at 3 p.m. Steps Art Gallery, 62 Ligon Street, Carlton. All proceeds from the exhibition will be donated to CAN and MAPW to support the vital work they're doing to ban nuclear weapons and promote peace. 22nd of May, which is a Tuesday, uh, book launch. Capitalism, a crime story. In this new book, um, Harry Glasbeek me- makes the sense, that makes the case that if 
the rules and doctrines of liberal law are applied, as they should be according to law's own pronouncements and methodology, corporate capitalism would be much harder to defend. Would be much harder to defend. So that's a, that's a interesting angle, a different one, maybe not so timely when uh, capitalism is. Um, you know, running rampage all over the world. But nevertheless, there should be a controversial uh, book launch. It's a trade, it's a trade hall um, in uh, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, of course, hosted by the New International Bookshop. So if you're interested in a, in a good discussion, probably a robust one, that's one to, to attend. And the 2nd of June, a big uh, red book fair. Come, come along for heaps of cheap books across all genres, uh, barbecue lunch, and meet like-minded community group representatives. Of course, there will be plenty of our specificities, specialities, sorry, um, left politics, history, and sociology. So that's at the New International Bookshop, 54 Victoria Street. Um, and Saturday, 16th of June, the Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, the one that you, you know happens every year. Will Trump tweet us to oblivion is the title at this time. Uh, the MC will be Rod Quantock and there will be Sean, Sean Bedlam, Fred Hamster, Helen Child, Gabe Hogan, Kirsty Mack and Morven Smith. Tickets will be $50 solidarity, 30 regular, 22 low wage, 15 concession. Dinner at the bar, dinner and bar available. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road in Dawson. Um, we have got um, Troy Carter online, and he's a lead delegate for the SOAGL dispute that's been raging for 300 days. And there's some new developments that Troy will update us on. Morning, Troy. Good morning. How are you? Good, good, thanks. I hope you're well. I know you're t- taking your kids. I hope you have taken your kids to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very well. I'm actually... Uh, at home this morning, so I'm glad I'm not down the picket line on this rainy morning. <laughs> I know, it's, it's cold as well. Um, yeah. So, um, you are the lead delegate for this dispute from the AMWU. Um, tell us about what's going on, because it's three, it is over 300 days, and it's, it's a long, drawn-out dispute. Now that 50 days was long in the nurses' strike in, in 1986. Um, yeah. How how's the dispute going, and how are the workers bearing up? Yeah, yeah, good. Like um, it, it's it's definitely hard, as you said. We've been 317 days today on a picket line because they uh, UGL were legally able to make 230 working families redundant on the 15th of June last year, and offer us the same jobs back the next day, but with a 30 to 40 percent pay cut, cuts to the allowances, annual leave, and loadings, and you know, a move from a seven-day-on, seven-day-off roster to one that was completely at the discretion of the company, as well as a heap of other things, you know, accepting uh, zero full-time jobs, the introduction of short working uh, contracts, um, and it would have seen our union ratified EBA replaced overnight by a collective agreement that was um, voted on by just five people in Western Australia. And they didn't I thought it was three. It's five, is it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, five. I thought it was three at the, at the beginning too. I know three people had signed off on it. I've seen the document, but uh, I, I hear there was five people. So mm. okay. Um, so what 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 is the state of the workers at the moment? Because we've been following this dispute um, for all this uh, time, and we mm. interviewed the um, ETU delegate the last time we, we spoke. Yeah, it would have been uh, my my partner in crime, Dane. <laughs> <laughs> and a good crime at that. <laughs> 
it's not really a crime, is it? But no. uh, we're just standing up for our uh, for workers' rights. So. Yeah. Because I, I, I sort of um, was looking at the latest article or, or announcement that's what made by Troy Gray, who's the secretary of the ETU, about this dispute where labor hire companies are in and they're bringing in workers, especially from overseas, which actually becomes a little bit complicated because the five, four, five, seven visas have been granted to workers to take up some of the positions, apparently. You can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And that introduces yeah. another weird element to the dispute because it becomes a nationalistic one, uh, not just a worker-employer dispute. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's tough. Um, I've, I'm, I'm actually hoping to go and meet with Troy, uh, you know, before this May Day march and, and find out a little bit more information on that. Um, the only thing I, I can really tell is that I think there's approximately uh, 250 uh, people on this I think it's a solar project uh, in New South Wales. I'm, mm. I'm really guessing on that. No, no, you're right. Uh, I read the article. It is, it is they're yeah, using the yeah. renewable energy area and, yeah, and, and correct, they're correct, pretending yeah. they're, they're creating jobs in the renewable area, but they are using backpackers yeah. and people on 457s to do the job and not the local correct, labour. Correct. Yeah. It's just another, um, you know, it, it, it just goes to show the, the length at which uh, UGL will go to undermine Australian working families. It's, um, you know, they've, they've gone... I, I also believe they went into that, you know, promising local jobs to local families, and yet here again they're, they're, they seem to be shafting the local families like they have us in Gippsland, and uh, for the broader picture of whether they sell themselves out as being able to break unions or whatever it is. It's, it's just, um, it's ridiculous. Mm. And we've got to tell them it's enough. Yeah. And, and it's enough got such enough, good support, yeah. haven't they? They have, they have lots of this long, so obviously the support is very good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, and, and as with our dispute, so um, we'll try and uh, support as much as we can around the country, you know, by visiting other uh, myself and the um, other AMWU delegate Steve Solomon, we've been travelling around to UGL sites across Australia to go and uh, make the UGL workers aware of what's actually happening. Um, and it, it, it seems just a carbon copy everywhere we've been to mm. UGL. Their mm. tactics seem to be is that um, uh, we'll put a manager in and we'll, we'll build a relationship and, and, and we'll make it as if yeah, we're, we're for the people, we're all friendly and, um, you know, we had guys that didn't want to come out and meet with us because, oh, we've got a good relationship with management, we don't want to upset them, you know. We were the same, we had a good relationship with our management but um, while, while we were acting in good faith, they were, they were doing all the nonsense behind the scenes and um, without any conscience come the end of the contract, that was it, terminate everyone and here you go, take it or leave it. So, mm. Yeah, just, um, you know, so uh, people need to be aware and, and we need to get together and just say enough's enough. Mm. So what sort of jobs do the AMWU um, members do within this um, joint, so to speak? Uh, as in offshore? Yeah. Now you, you've, yeah. Got, you've got the ETU, eh? all the, the, the members will be electrical um, workers. Yes. What work do your members do? Um, well, as far as, um, you know, 
about, about in Bass Strait, the AW, AMW, the ETU, we all work together. Um, you know, the, the AW would look after the scaffolding. They build a scaffold to, for us to access, uh, an area on the platform that needs maintenance. The AMW workers would come in and do the maintenance on that work and the ETU would do the electrical side of it. So we really work together, and that's why as a, um, the three unions, we've had to fight this dispute hand-in-hand hand because it's, um, it, it affects all of us. Hmm. So, yeah. And I, I guess this, this has become one of the catch cries of the Change Rules campaign as well, hasn't it, this, this particular dispute? Yeah, correct, because, I mean, we're a true example of how broken the look the rules are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, uh, like I said, when a company can just come in um, and, and terminate or make, make a, an entire workforce redundant Monday, offer them the very same jobs back for the same people, the same management, we would have had the same passwords, logins, same email addresses, you name it, everything exactly the same, and yet um, force us onto a 30 to 40% pay cut um, as well as a heap of other things. And, and that was the thing with um, our company. Like, we never even, um, they all said, oh, it's, it's about the money, but we were, the main reason we ended up where we are is just because of the conditions that they were trying to enforce on us. It's mm. just, uh, it's inhumane and, and it destroys families. It's just, um, you know, we spent a lot of time up, up at Itchies, up in Darwin, speaking to the guys up there and, and in the last three years, they've had uh, 14 people commit suicide because oh. of the, the rosters that they're on up there. And, and that's not including uh, when, when, how they come up with that statistic is that uh, they don't class anyone who might have gone home or unfortunately in a hotel room or somewhere else um, seen, you know, no way out of the situation they're in or, or their, their mental health wasn't right at the time where they've, they've unfortunately taken their own lives, that, t- that statistic would be three, four times greater in the last three years. But they don't do anything to help out. They're not offering them any assistance. Um, it, it's just ludicrous so, how so, they can do it. Sorry to interrupt, but what are the conditions that are so bad that it will drive people to suicide? Well, look, up, up at Itchies, um, I haven't worked there myself, but from talking to many, many members up there, we know they, they work a four week on for, uh, sorry, they work four weeks on and they have one week off to go home with their families. And in the week off, they have, um, they've got a day's travel, so any interstate person will have, uh, have to travel back to Victoria or Western Australia or wherever they may be. So you lose a day's travel home and back to work. So essentially you're getting five days off every 20, um, you know, after working 28 days. 28 days. days. Straight for 10 hours a day in, in, in the heat, in the humidity, wearing um, coveralls, you know, hard hats, gloves, you know, just yeah, sweltering the whole, the whole time, you know. So with no social aspect or being able to come back and, you know, be with your family. So... Um, it's just, yeah, it, how, how they can, a company can enforce that on, onto people is, is beyond me. It, it might suit some people, some young, uh, single people that aren't married or, or things like that. But, um, for, for working people that, um, come from communities where there isn't any work and they're left with a, 
you know, well, I can either go and work and earn money for my family or or, or we struggle with nothing, mm. you know. So. And, and then those conditions, were they part of the previous EBA? Well, um, I, I'm not sure about that, but it, referring back to our situation is, is um, uh, we we were working a seven-day-on, seven-day-off roster oh, yes, and, and we might be on a... Um, um, we'd be out on a shutdown and we might have four people to a room. So you're working minimum 12 hours a day. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we could, depending on the job, we might have to work 14 hours a day. And um, you go back to your room, which is no, you know, it, it's not even 10 foot by 10 foot. It's this tiny little pokey room. You've got four people sleeping in there and you might not be... Uh, a snorer yourself, and you might be in there with three other people who are snoring. Oh, and <laughs> Sounds awful. And, and by the end of the seven days, like, I mean, there's research, and we've, we've got all the facts that they're, they're saying, you know, the accumulative sleep loss is, is equivalent to someone um, driving a motor car at over 0. 0.05, you know, which is not acceptable. And so they're trying to enforce onto us this um, at a roster at the discretion of the company, which could then see us working up to 52 days at any one time. So you imagine being under those conditions for 52 days, uh, you become a danger to yourself, to the, the running of the platform, to everyone else around you, and, and, and to the infrastructure of putting uh, gas into the pipeline, you know. So um, we, we just think that, that that's unacceptable. We Absolutely, you know, we, yeah. Yeah, can't do it. No, yeah. no, and no one should should have to do it. Just as you're describing, I'm thinking I know another place where these sort of shifts, um, shift work occurs, and that's in China. <laughs> yeah. What kind of a you know country that allows this this sort of working conditions yeah. to exist? Never mind yeah. anything else. And and uh, I guess the change of rules campaign comes at a good time for your workers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's right. And and, and because. That, that's one of the other complications we've got is that because we're offshore, we don't come under the jurisdiction of um, WorkSafe. Ah. Uh, WorkSafe wouldn't wouldn't allow those uh, conditions to um, onshore, but offshore they're they're, they're governed by NOPSEMA, which is uh, basically funded by oil and gas companies uh, in Australia, and they're self-regulating. So we've had many times there, there's you know so many instances of things happening out there that just gets um, swept under the carpet and not dealt with it. You know, you know like um, this alternate workforce has gone out and they've slaughtered a seal, which is a protected species in Australia, and, and, and yet, um, you know, there's nothing about it. You don't hear anything about it, but yet the... The three witnesses that were Exxon Mobil workers that um, that um, you know discovered what they had done, they all got terminated and, and sacked for other things, and, and yet um, nothing about the person who's actually gone and, and, and broken the law. So you, even though they are union members, Australian union mm. members, they aren't covered by the Occupational Health and Safety Law of Australia because they work offshore. Yeah, yeah, but um, we don't have uh, uh, WorkSafe don't have jurisdiction to actually get on on one of their helicopters and go out there and and enforce anything like they do onshore. So that'll be outside what they call the Australian waters. Would that be right? Or is it uh, 
No, no, we're, we're still in, but it's, it's, there's, there's a line drawn in the sand so many kilometres offshore where, um, you know, it, it becomes NOPSEMA, you know, the National uh, Offshore Petroleum um, Safety, whatever it, the, their, <laughs> their catch cry is. Mm, I must look that up because I've never heard of that one. Um, another loophole, I guess, to exploit workers even further. Like yeah. A, I mean, we've tried to get their support on a number of things and, um, you know, things that are just outrageous and, and um, you know, uh, these are gas leaks and things like that um, that, that have been potentially fatal and, yes. and, and yet, um, you know, through local experts and, and the operators there, we know that it's been sort of like, here's this uh, big gas release but it always gets reported as a oh, minute or it was nothing and, and it, it's below the 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 um, the dotted line that where it needs to be reported to Noxema and even if you try and you know the try and um, contact them about these issues they, they, they just don't get dealt with yeah anyway that's um, we're running out of time here Troy but thank you so much yep. that's very informative actually so we'll keep yeah. keep on keeping an eye on this dispute and thank yeah. you for your time oh you're more than welcome thanks for having me okay bye All right bye bye